0: our vocabulary for describing sexual identity has expanded. LGBT has become LGBTQIA2, and many are using the term sexual minorities to encompass all of the varieties of sexual identity. For example, a growing number of young men are referring to themselves as mostly straight or a little bit gay. Today's guest, Dr. Rich Savin-Williams, is an expert on fluid sexual identity. Rich is Professor Emeritus of Developmental Psychology at Cornell University and he has written 10 books on adolescent development including Mostly Straight, Sexual Fluidity Among Men. Publishers Weekly has described his work as an excellent resource. Rich works as a clinical psychologist and has served as an expert witness on same-sex marriage, gay adoption, and gender discrimination. Rich has also consulted for media outlets such as The New York Times 2020, The Oprah Winfrey Show, Good Morning America, and many others. So please, join me as Rich helps us to understand sexual fluidity in today's culture. Dr. Rich Savin-Williams, who I will be calling Rich, welcome to Super Psyched. Glad to be here. Uh, I have so many questions for you, uh, more questions probably than we actually have time for, but um, if you could just speak just for a moment about what is sexual fluidity?
1: Well, sexual fluidity is the, um, the, the state of having one's sexual and romantic attractions um, changeable over time or flexible over time, whether short-term could be day-to-day, could be week-to-week, could be year-to-year, um, or circumstances or the context in which it, um, it occurs can be the critical component here. So it's, it's, it's as if one's sexuality exists on a spectrum rather than in terms of a category, and as a result of that sort of spectrum or continuum, that one can be at different points along that continuum at various times and contexts.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I'm thinking about the Kinsey scale, which kind of goes from zero, I believe, to completely straight all the way up to six, which means completely gay, and every number in between. That scale was created, I believe, in 1948. And since that time, approximately 200 similar scales have been developed and yet sexual fluidity as a concept appears to be new. Do you have any idea as to why that is?
1: Well, certainly in terms of our research, we like categories they are easier to (laughs) analyze. Um, (laughs) When someone doesn't correspond to one of the response sets that we have uh, established, then it makes it difficult. And usually those data are deleted. Now, when you actually take it research, um, there's always a a number of people who are deleted for various reasons, and one reason is that they don't fit the categories that we have. I think that clinicians and educators and other sort of healthcare professionals, um, they too want to understand what's going on, and they might understand gay, straight, and bisexual but when you put in the word fluidity, then automatically the image that comes up is, oh, you're questioning, or you're not sure, or you're afraid to say for sure what you are because you're hiding something. Right. So there's a real sense that, that the if an individual says fluid or, or at all um, indicates that, that they are disbelieved or they believe the person believes it he or she must be on the fence.
0: So there's almost some skepticism that they're meeting when they say that. Yes.
1: Uh, And also that we frequently don't even give them that opportunity. So they are asking for fitting into one of these boxes that we establish. And what has happened is that in this newest generation, especially the disease, but also just also, in terms of the millennials, they too have begun to resist these, um, these boxes and say, hold on a minute, um, your boxes you know, are sort of adult creations and they don't really fit our lives.
0: That's incredible. You noted that with regard to sexual identity, the fastest growing group is men who describe themselves as, quote, mostly straight, but not necessarily straight, gay, or bisexual. And I'm wondering how it is that this generation is tapping into that truth, kind of being able to more accurately pinpoint where they fall on the spectrum. What has nurtured this?
1: Well, clearly that for some time um, in terms of women, women have felt that they exist much more on a spectrum and they have been more likely to identify as fluid or as mostly straight or pansexual or queer, any variety of whatever they want to describe themselves. And we have sort of given them, if you will, this freedom because, yeah. well, you know, they're women. And <sighs> we, somehow we don't expect women to be uh, so categorical or we don't believe that their sexuality is sort of biologically sort of fixated. What has changed, I think, very recently is that increasing number of men are beginning to say, hold on a minute, Um, if women can describe their sexuality or romantic attractions in this way, we can too. And I think what has happened is that a lot of men have begun to really question the whole notion of absolute straightness. So the mostly straight young man and young woman as well will say, well, I am straight, but (laughs) I'm also, uh, if I I can use some of the words, a little bit gay. Uh Uh, And I think in many ways, these mostly straight individuals are also more likely to be fluid. That is that they are very likely to fluctuate in terms of where they are along this continuum, though very few ever go, you know, beyond bisexual um, in, in terms of, of how they could identify themselves or describe themselves.
0: So it's as if the lexicon has changed over time to allow for men who don't have the stigma, I mean, who do have, have the sti- historically have had the stigma that women haven't had around sexuality. So maybe a confluence of both the lexicon and perhaps more psychological awareness amongst the youth. Any other factors, perhaps in the media or just in the zeitgeist, that are allowing uh, males to tap more accurately into what their truth is?
1: I think that they have picked up in their culture and their pop culture and their social media that there's no harm done mm-hmm. <laughs> to be a little bit gay, if you will, <clears throat> or that is to have same-sex attractions, and I'm, I'm talking not, now not just about sexual attractions, but also romantic attractions, that it is okay. It doesn't destroy your manhood, um, and in fact, in some quarters in their generation, it's actually a plus, a bonus, that shows that you're not sort of rigid in these aspects of your um, personality. And I think that is a value that um, they have incorporated and was not previously there so much. Um, They did face in other generations a lot of stigma if they exhibited any kinds of sort of cross gender behavior or expression of any sorts. And that certainly held I think in a very, in a stronger way for young men than for young women.
0: I find myself a bit baffled by the idea of homophobia. What about it has made it such a state I mean, what about homosexuality or being a little bit gay or anywhere on the spectrum has has led people to so much fear? what's What's your sense of that historically? I mean, we had that scale since nineteen forty eight, and yet only recently has fluidity come into uh, a collective American consciousness as as a thing. What about it has, what what has caused uh, at the root such homophobia and made it so pervasive? i
1: I think that most likely the the connection has been with homosexuality and, at least for men, femininity, and femininity for men has always meant a weakness. Um, that is, that they are not uh, as strong, they're not as together, if you will, that, um, you know, that I think in the, in the past, this, this whole notion of, you know, you, you've got to be manly, right. cisgender <laughs> right. um, at this point, and I think that um, that has sort of led many to begin to even conceptualize the whole notion of, of toxic mas- masculinity. Mm-hmm. That is, that not only is it bad for men, and there is some evidence that, um, that toxic masculinity takes its toll on men with uh, drug addiction, low self-esteem, suicide, those kinds of things that men have thought they had to try to do. And then when they failed, then they saw there was no other option than to dismiss it, kill yourself, somehow um, put that aside. So I think that that has been there for so many years. But I think that now there there is a sort of a loosening of that kind of um, connection for for young men. So it's harmful not only for the men, but also it's harmful for women because what toxic masculinity frequently does is it takes away power away from women and makes them feel as if they are second class, third class, um, certainly on the bottom of any kind of hierarchy that you might arrange. So in that sort of spectrum, if you will, um, gay people have, in many ways, been portrayed as as going the wrong direction there. Mm. And it's
0: also...
1: I, I, I just want to add that it, it's kind of ironic in a way that when you look at research and you look at issues of like self-esteem or self-satisfaction and psychological well-being, usually the reference group is heterosexual men. And yet by some measures, at least from my perspective, heterosexual men are not the epitome of psychological health. And (laughs) yet when you compare, for example, um, sexual minorities to um, straight men, they look deficient. But in some ways one could turn around and say, no, it's the straight men who are deficient. And in the strong people of the sexual minorities and the women, in terms of other aspects of what you know, you and I would consider to be psychologically healthy.
0: You know, it's interesting. Not so long ago, in the DSM, our uh, bible for diagnosis, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, that has all of the classifications of mental illness, homosexuality was actually listed among them and was finally taken out. And what you're actually noting is that. In many cases it's more likely that toxic masculinity would be uh, and, and certain heterosexual traits might fit uh, more appropriately in a dSM
1: right and I, it's that the, I, I want to sort of be clear that I don't think masculinity is necessarily toxic
0: absolutely not I'm not hearing that
1: <laughs> okay I, I mean I certainly do not equate those two, but I think there comes a point when the the power, uh, the desire, the mandate to be masculine does get in the way of real human beings, including uh, males. And I think it keeps them from maybe being more um, uh, sensitive, more able to express emotions, all the things that we sort of like to hear um, that our men can are capable of doing. You
0: know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In the early aughts, uh, Scrubs was the first TV show I had ever seen that really showed two heterosexual males having a really deep emotional connection with no threats to their sexuality. They were both clearly very straight um, on the Kinsey scale. And recently in Brooklyn Nine Nine, uh, Jake and Boyle have this just profound love for each other and they express it very freely. and that seems to be, I think, a mirror on what's happening in in, in a very good way. Um, perhaps uh, toxic masculinity uh, is beginning to to shrink somewhat in the society. What are your What are your thoughts on that? And and actually, if you could even define it, toxic masculinity as you see it, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Oops. Certainly, I think you know there is no real clear definition of toxic masculinity. But in general, when we talk about that, it's a sense of being extremely rigid in terms of what a man feels like they can act or express. That it is a um, an unwillingness to examine feelings and emotions and sort of operate on the basis of some sort of, well, just rigidity about what a man is supposed to be. So there's no flexibility in that. And in many ways, they feel a part of that is to dominate women, to dominate sexual minorities, that they are at the the top of the the patriarchy, and that um, they must stay there regardless uh, and, of course, the consequences we, all, we know all too well in our, in our culture of men who feel that that's their mandate, that they must be like. Now, I think that what has happened for younger people is that they see those assumptions about what a, quote, unquote, real man is being challenged among, I mean, in their shows that they're watching, among their friends. Um, in the kinds of uh, YouTube experiences um, that, and and I think maybe especially in some of their heroes in the entertainment industry, somewhat but less so certainly in the sports world, that um, they are beginning to see that the people who are important to them don't see masculinity in this way. Is sort of in a toxic way.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I have been seeing this on uh, kind of as a as a new phenomenon uh, with an, an NBA player and an NFL player coming out as gay. Um, some of them wearing pink, um, honoring women. Uh, it's uh, there has been there has been a change over the past few years. What um, what good do you see coming? as a result of a more integrated approach to one's sense of identity as a a gender in general?
1: Well, I think certainly men will be those who prosper the most in that Mm. uh, they will hopefully begin to understand that they can be more authentic in terms of what it is that's going on for them, that they will be more open To a variety of life, that they won't feel so compelled to go down particular pathways. Now, that said, I also think women will prosper immensely as well, just in terms of having the kinds of partners that they want to be with. Um, They would be with partners who try to understand them, who try to share power, to share authority, to share their lives in a more meaningful way rather than in a more up-down, you-me kind of, of way. So I, I believe that there are very few avenues in our life which I would see that um, where it's a detriment you know, to, to allow men to be more um, fluid in their, in their gender experience. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and you're you're implying that with the decrease of rigidity, perhaps posturing and swagger, uh, that men, one of the gifts that this could really give men as as this evolution takes place, is that men can be more emotionally connected, maybe more present in their lives, and maybe better partners to, uh, assuming they're heterosexual in this case, to their uh, female partners. Yeah. And I've been seeing that the... The hallmark of a great leader is their emotional intelligence. And it sounds like with this evolution, that will in all likelihood be one of the predicted outcomes of, of this greater tapping in.
1: Right. It would hopefully manifest itself in fewer sort of manly bluffs and threats. And- uh-huh one-upmanship, you know, we're greater, better than you are, but one can certainly see this this masculinity being displayed in certain aspects of our, um, you know, in our institutions, in our cultural institutions, and I suspect maybe that's going to take a long time to um, erode, but I think the place to begin certainly is within individual lives. And hopefully these individual lives, once they sort of ascend to power or sources of influence, that they can make this, this sort of sense of, um, of one-upmanship and masculinity less important and find other ways of maybe sharing, of, of trying to understand each other. That would, um, would help, I think, all of our lives in a significant way.
0: Yeah, it's been my experience and some of the things I have read with regard to research has been that in creating really meaningful connections with others, one upmanship is not a really great avenue for that.
1: Right, right. It's um I think this is one of those um the one one, one of the things that um young people have a lot to teach us. And it is, I think, in some ways, expressed in the fact that um, more and more, the young people, when they respond to our research questionnaires, they sort of object and they are now willing to adopt a whole slew of different identities, but even... which. We don't necessarily know the meanings of because some of them are sort of individualistic, that it's hard to know exactly what it is when they use certain kinds of of identities. But I also think that there is a movement away from um, sexual identities that is um, sort of what I would call sort of a post identity that's going on among these young people. So, what they would do or say that I've increasingly um, encountered is that when i ask questions of say sexual identity what they will and i give them free rein to say whatever they want what they do is they describe things rather than putting them putting labels on them so even for example um young mm. men who are very um same-sex oriented if you will might not say gay what they say is i like boys so you know, that, it seems like maybe that's only a subtle uh, difference, but it's a very important one because it's a lot easier to describe in a way and having those descriptions change over time, where if you have an identity, then if you change that, somehow that connotes some kind of, of um, sort of inconsistency or some kind of like, what are you saying? Just yesterday you were such and such. And so I think there is a way in which um, this kind of more descriptive approach towards um, love and romance and sex is, is kind of a healthy thing. So that, for example, a mostly straight guy might say, um, I'm straight, but I'm not blind. Or, you know, say, I'm straight, but, you know, if the right guy comes along, you just never know. Uh-huh. Uh, or I'm straight, and I am having these attractions to guys, and it's kind of interesting, and I might want to explore those in the future. So once again, these are more openings rather than closures, and I think they see identity as a closure, and their way of now understanding what they are about as being very important because it, it gives them the freedom it gives it, it sort of reflects better their lives, which is It's in a state of change and development, and it's not singular in its trajectory. But it might take different avenues as they live their life. Now, clearly, that poses real problems for uh, social scientists Mm -hmm. like who like these these boxes. Right. And I think what's what's important is that as I read the literature, and I think this has become more and more of reality for me is that I disbelieve a lot of the research that has been based on sexual minorities, whether that's on suicidality or any kind of sort of pathology, because I think that they have omitted many, many young people who indeed, um, you know, either they're deleted because their data didn't fit or they were forced into a category that wasn't really them. So I think that that, you know, if whether we are research scientists who are trying to understand our population and the way that we have done so in the past, I think distorts our knowledge and then that knowledge is conveyed to clinicians, to health educators, to teachers, to counselors about this population when in fact the information we're giving them is, is false or certainly is incomplete. And I think that 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 makes it even more important to to get the information out there and to listen to lives and to listen to what they have to tell us and then not simply dismiss them because it's inconvenient. And that's what strikes me about so many of these um, Generation Z and millennial youth and young adults is that, oops, it's inconvenient for us and our research and we refuse to um, sort of allow our research to be messy, if you
0: will. You are a researcher and you've done so much good work. And I'm wondering, you've just mentioned a really baffling problem about the inconvenient truth that there is a spectrum that people might not fit into particular boxes. How do you do a quantitative study on? on on sexuality, given the absence of boxes?
1: Well, first off, I'm not so sure I would, um, and I have, but I would not now (laughs) Mm -hmm. do large scale surveys where there are only three options. And so now what I've seen some researchers do is they say, please describe your sexuality, and they have an open box, and then the individual writes what they want in that. And then later on, after the fact, then you can try to make sense of some of these kinds of um, terms or phrases that uh, the youth are using. Now, clearly, if you have a two to three hundred questionnaire, you that's hard to do. Mm -hmm. But then I'm not quite sure that that's helpful to compare. And let me just give you an example. So um, I'm. (laughs) currently writing about bisexuality because I've been intrigued by different aspects of it. And what's clear is that when you look at the literature, you find, depending on the gender, but two to 4% of people in the United States say they are bisexual. Yeah. Now, that's interesting in in its own way because it's so small. And then when you look at the mental health, Of those bisexuals, they're the worst. Okay, they're 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 worse than gays and lesbians in terms of their mental health. But if you sort of say, okay, now let's take another look at some of this literature when you can, and not always can you, that when I begin to include other people who were deleted, I'm estimating that the percentage may be as high as twenty five percent of the population is bisexual. Now, if you're sort of saying that. What, what you're reporting is based on the two to four, two to five percent, and yet you are missing the vast majority of bisexuals, then what are you saying? I mean, I almost think it'd be worse not to say anything at all than to talk about the, a, a population which doesn't represent anything. And indeed, it might be, it's conceivable that those who say they are bisexual are not only misrepresenting the bisexual population in general, but they may actually be some of the most troubled bisexuals in the population. So here we have this notion, and it's everywhere, 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 and I think it probably is there among all healthcare providers that bisexuals are troubled individuals. I don't believe that. I mean, I believe the research shows that, but then I don't believe the research. So um, I think this is a way in which um, we as, and because I'm also a clinician, so I, I am interested in research, and I am interested in how research can help me with my clinical practice. But if I'm reading the wrong stuff and getting wrong information, am I being a good clinician um, under those circumstances? So that's a way in which I believe that research, in some ways, has harmed us uh, to no end because of of us getting these kinds of sampling
0: problems. So, Rich, that was a bombshell. 25 percent, perhaps, of the population is bisexual. How did you come to that number?
1: And and by the way, no one in the field would agree with me on that. Sure. I want to be clear. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. So. Um, so. What, so you start including the mostly straights and mostly gays. Now, these are individuals who, are, um, who say they have some same-sex attraction. So let's, let's take women because it's more, you know, it's, it's more dramatic. So let's just say 5% of, of women are bisexual. We'll say they're bisexual. But there's certainly research that 10 to 15% of women say they're mostly straight. Now, what happens to those mostly straight women? Oh, lo and behold, they get combined with the straights. So th- you mentioned the Kinsey scale. So mostly straights um, on this zero to six scale are ones, Kinsey ones. But they get combined with the zeros. Why? Hmm. I don't know why, <sighs> they're really bisexual. Why right. are they bisexual? Because yeah. they have attractions to both sexes. <laughs> yep. um, so right there, automatically with women, you are now up to at least 15%, maybe 20%. And that's not even including the other end, the fives who are mostly lesbian, who really are bisexual, even though they get combined with lesbians. There's also individuals who are trans, many trans people, maybe as much as a third, some say a half, but I'll go with a third, um, are bisexual. What happens to them in our research? Or those who are into kink? A lot of kink people are really bisexual. Or we have all those who get deleted because they refuse to answer. Why are they refusing to answer? Uh, Maybe they're refusing to answer because they don't like our question. They refuse to fit into a box. And there's just these kinds of things are people who say they're unsure or they're questioning. Are they questioning because they they don't know if they're gay or straight? So when you really sort of begin to count all these individuals, um, Then indeed, what happens is like, what are these people who are deleted? For example, in most good research, um, national research, you could get ten to twelve percent of all questionnaires you have to throw away because they didn't fit one of their boxes—the gay, lesbian, gay, lesbian, bisexual, straight box. Who are these individuals? Are they all straight? Are they all gay, lesbian? Maybe a certain percent of them are, are bisexual. If you really were to know, so those are those are the kinds of of ways where I think all we have to do is sort of open our mind a little bit and say, well, maybe you don't have to say you're by to be by.
0: That is incredible. So we have a sample size uh, of 300 people who are in the study, and many people have maybe opted out, and we really don't have a randomized uh, group of 300. In other
1: words, that's right. And, you know, we almost never and I'll underline the word never Uh (laughs) know know who those who who drop out, why they drop out. There could be a number of reasons. I'm not saying because they're all (laughs) by, but we don't know anything at all about those, um, you know, 30 or more individuals who who dropped out because or or they might have not they might have not have dropped out, but they might not have completed that sexual orientation question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they probably didn't answer that for various reasons, but I'm guessing that some of those may have dual attractions.
0: You know, you said that many of your colleagues might not agree with the number that you cited, 25%, and yet you are a man who has been working in the field at the highest level. I mean, you were even in the national licensure exam, uh, your credibility is unquestionable. Uh, I wonder what issues would they take with that figure that you are postulating?
1: Well, I think the approach of most of my peers would would be something, oh, that's rich. (laughs) He's (laughs) He's just on this crusade, which may be true, but on the other hand, I think what has what has happened to me over the last, I think, decade or so, um, and actually, it's probably been true true throughout my life, which is that you just have to listen to kids. And the amazing thing is that most of the researchers on adolescent development um, on these kinds of issues have never really talked with kids. They don't know kids. They wouldn't know how to talk with kids, and so. What I, what I try to do in my life has always been to keep in touch with them so that, for example, the last um, 5, 10 years, 10, 15 years, hmm, five, um, is that I've done workshops for kids in stores, Connecticut for the True Colors group, which is 3,000 kids come together for a weekend to talk about issues of gender and sexuality. And for me, it's a, the it's a best time I have in the entire year. Because there they are, these kids who just want to talk, and I don't say anything. I just let them talk, and then I take notes like crazy (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, because I want to know what they are saying, and I want to know how they're experiencing their lives and, and what it's like. And they are so, so negative about the kinds of adult researchers that are publishing in major journals. In sexuality studies, because they say, well, I won't say what they say, because uh, anyway, um, but they they just disbelieve it and they just dismiss us so quickly. And so, for me, I you know I um, I would go toe to toe with any of these researchers and say, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about what's going on here and whether your data are believable or not, and. I I really would love for them to do that because I think that there could be potentially a seismic shift in how we approach young people. Um, and I do understand their perspective. They've got to publish. They've got tenure to, to make. They've got research grants to, um, you know, to submit. Um, and there is a reality, which is that that applications for research that emphasize the resilience and the strength and the sort of the normalness, if you will, or the typicality of sexual minority um, youth and young adults, that doesn't exist. We only fund what goes wrong with them. And I think what we have done over the years is that we know how to recruit young people who will satisfy the what goes wrong with you. We know how to ask the right question, and the questions, and we know how to um, define those kids. A good example is, is something I spent a decade fighting, and I've given up now because it's just, it's nothing I can do about it, which is the whole notion of suicidality among sexual minority youth. And there are a lot of reasons why that literature is horribly flawed, and yet it has reached sort of the standard knowledge, if you ask any kid, and sometimes I ask the youth that I'm doing the workshop with, what, what is the one thing you know about, you know, sexual minority youth? They go, we kill ourselves better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And you know, they laugh because they think that's kind of funny, and it is kind of funny, but it's also extraordinarily sad that this is the message that has been conveyed to them by adults and by our culture. Um, it's on national public radio, it's on CNN, it's, uh, it's on MSNBC, any of those kinds of even liberal, you don't have to do the conservative ones. The liberal ones say, oh, these poor youth, they're killing themselves at just huge rates. And yet it's not true. But you can't convince that it's not true. I've tried. Sure. <laughs> and It has it failed. And and I, it's not just about this kind of um, um, severe suicidality. Um, another example is that, um, is that we frequently look at depression. And what you find is that gay youth are um, more likely to be depressed. Okay, study after study, there have been maybe, uh, I mean, there, i start to say hundreds, but there hasn't been that many. There have been scores of studies that have found gay youth are more depressed. Now, more depressed than who? Well, they're more depressed than straight men say they are. Now, we also know that straight men would never admit or, or would certainly <sighs> downplay their depression. We know that from our previous conversation here about toxic masculinity. But if you compare those gay male youth with women, lo and behold there's no difference right now why shouldn't we compare gay males to straight women that makes more sense in some ways than it does to compare them with straight men and i'm just giving that as an example of how a myth has arisen where in reality there's a very very different story and i think what it is is gay men have the sense of self-reflection of admitting, OK, I'm kind of sad today, um, you know, sort of more in touch with their emotionality. And that's why, of course, women will rate as more depressed than than men is because they're more in touch with their inner feelings, their emotional selves, and they're probably less likely to lie on, right. our, on our depression scales um, for depression scales for men. You know, you look at acting out and aggression and drinking and drugs as maybe more reflective of depression than you, than you would a question says, during the last week, have you felt sad um, over some known or unknown sort of aspect?
0: You know, I, I one of my favorite words in our profession is alexithymia. It's such a fancy sounding word, and it means the inability to really put words to your emotions. And I imagine that uh, there—I mean—that within the straight male community, uh, alexithymia is quite pervasive, which may account, at least in part, for the underrepresentation of uh, straight males being de- depressed or even anxious. It seems like the incidence of straight women uh, experiencing depression or anxiety is higher, and that uh, there are many people who believe that's erroneous.
1: Yes. Yes. And I, I, um, I saw once one uh, study, I, I can't recall where it was now, that actually sort of looked at different ways of measuring depression. And when you made it more gender specific, men, there was no real gender difference. Right. You know, it's just how you define what it is you want to assess. And I think that young people, you know, sort of, as they become more in touch with their own inner feelings will be more, if you will, female like. And I think that may be a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I see what you mean. Uh the ability to I mean, when you think about even some of the qualities that uh an introvert might have, we're beginning to see the upside of introversion uh in in a very extroverted nation. Uh Whereas, say, the Scandinavian countries are far more introverted, and uh, there seems to be a real power amongst introverts. And perhaps, similarly, there's a real power amongst being more tapped into one's feminine side. Uh, Carl Jung really talked extensively about all humans having masculine and feminine qualities, uh, regardless of their sexual identity and uh i i what I'm kind of hearing in the in the margins is that maybe there's there's gold there
1: yes i i I agree, I very much agree.
0: you know I'm going to geek out for a second uh, in the nineties uh, if I recall correctly, there were some postmortem studies on the brains of straight males, uh, females, and gay males, and that they found that hypothalamus. Uh, a region within the brain, a particular portion of the hypothalamus, to be really specific, was 50% smaller amongst gay and uh, females than it was relative to the straight male. And I'm wondering, uh, are there any other neurobiological indicators uh, that really uh, uh, can be attributed to uh, sexual differences?
1: uh well, that, that study by LaVey was not replicated by several others, Oh no! And, and it was replicated by one other. Um, part of the problem maybe was that his gay male brains died of AIDS <sighs> by and large. Um, but I think that um, there have been other sort of genetic studies that um, have been done they have some problems with replicating um, these studies. I think that what the the current understanding is that there are multiple multiple genes that influence attractions, desires, gender expression, and that it whether it means that you need you know, more than a certain number in mm-hmm. order to be gay or bi or whatever, or um, whether some genes are more important than others. And so I think that as a result of this, most of the research now is not sort of going in that direction. Mm-hmm. The funding is, is difficult. Um, and it just looks as if that is just so much a, a story of multiple genes, and we're not going to be able to identify one or two or three major genes that, um, was a, you know, sort of cause it, uh, sort of sexuality. I think that some of the direction has been, you know, looking at twin studies and other things, and it's clear that there is, clear, that there is a, um, a biological substrate to sexual orientation in both sexes, the problem is that that there's a lot of variance that's not accounted for. That is, Mm -hmm. we just don't know what may be going on. Now it could be as well the interaction of the prenatal environment and the sort of the hormonal and biological endocrine system there that interacts with whatever is genetically laid down. So it's so complicated and I think there's a lot of feeling like uh, sort of, so what? Mm-hmm. Um, because even gay advocates now say, you know, we, we shouldn't have to prove that we're born that way in order for us to have human rights. And I think, too, that as we begin to see that, um, that sexuality is not a matter of either or, but is on a continuum, then it becomes even more complicated. Like, how do you do genetic studies of pansexuals? or you know questioning or people who are into kink or who are trans so there's so much complexity now that i think the the simple mindedness of finding a quote-unquote gene or part of the brain that um, causes sexuality has been sort of downplayed maybe, maybe missed um and I think that the attitude more is like, it doesn't matter,
0: particularly. Yeah, especially because there should be, and and, and I I agree uh, with that statement that their human rights should not need to be justified by some biological basis. Right, right. Yeah, I really get that. And yet uh, I do find it fascinating, uh, in spite of that fact, I'm going to ask you one other question kind of related to that, that just kind of showed up just now in our flow. Um, there has, to my knowledge, been some uh, studies that indicate that there's an, even an evolutionary basis, There's that, that it's been good for the species to have homosexuals in, uh, in, our, in our tribe. Um, and 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 sexual minorities within our tribe, which sounds in many ways counterintuitive. Uh, are you aware of those studies? Do you agree with them? Uh, can you expand on what they're saying?
1: Now, do you mean across species or across cultures? Uh,
0: particularly uh, within our within the human species, I'm going to okay. speak of.
1: Right. So, I think it's fair to say from. From the anthropologist uh, perspective, that they have never found a culture in which there wasn't same sex attractions or behavior that was there. Uh, maybe to varying degrees, whether that depends on the willingness or the ability of that culture to, yeah. uh, to, to suppress it or to right. encourage it. Um, so I think that it certainly is close to universal. I think that there has been some. Um, development of theories about how this could be sort of evolutionarily advantageous. And people have come up with, I think, interesting possibilities. Of course, we don't know. But I think in most my own thinking of of this is that, you know, evolution loves variety. They they don't, you know, our genetic code is not uh, oriented only for one outcome. Multiple outcomes is what has made us such a such a successful species compared to many others. So, I, it would make sense in some ways for there to be um, an adaptation to having same sex attractions. Just to give an example, um, you know, if you're sending hunters out to gain protein hunting, mm-hmm. um, maybe it might be an advantage to have same sex attractions or same sex behavior. If you're wanting the hunting group to really coalesce and Form a bond and so forth, and also, you know, to have pleasure away from women, the females, for a long period of time, or for women to connect and bond in order to help with child rearing. All of these things one could hypothesize uh, would encourage some degree of same sex bonding. Now, whether it's total gayness, if you will, Mm -hmm. that is. Selected for is not the issue. It's maybe that some degree of same-sex attractions is, um, you know, is advantageous, and and in some situations you get extremes, you know, all, all along the continuum. Um, I think anyone who says it's it's it doesn't make any evolutionary sense is, uh, well, they don't know evolutionary theory very well. <laughs> there are many possibilities. Um, and that's, I just named just one, but there are, there are others that are out there.
0: Wow. That is amazing. Um, I guess I'm going to close on this question. Uh, and, uh, this has been just wonderful. You know, sadly, challenges remain in our society around awareness as it pertains to sexual minorities. And I'm wondering, what is your deepest hope regarding the public's awareness of sexual minorities and sexual identity over the forthcoming years?
1: So my, my biggest hope is that we will listen to young people because I think they're pointing us in the right direction. <laughs> that is of uh, extraordinary diversity in the expression of sexuality and romance that opens the doors to many expressions. And I'm hoping that we as adults can listen to them and can um, explore some of the ways in which that kind of diversity strengthens our culture, strengthens us as human beings. And that would, if that happens, I'd be thrilled. Well,
0: cheers to that, Rich. And okay. thank you so, <clears throat> thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to meet with me, and to share your wisdom with our listening audience, I can't thank you enough.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure and
0: thanks for asking. You bet. I look forward to connecting with you again soon. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psych. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.